Hello and welcome to Treasures from Malta, a podcast series produced by Fondazione Patrimonio Malti. I am Francesca Balzan, an art historian and an artist with a long connection with Patrimonio. I'll be presenting this podcast and meeting some of Malta's living treasures. These treasures are artists, historians or art collectors with some Malta connection. They're all fair game for the pod and we want to share them with you. everyone can i just start by saying thank you for all the love this podcast has received a tremendous amount of downloads and its reaches literally to every continent we've received so many emails direct messages calls and feedback egging us on and when i say us it's because this isn't a one woman show at all my face might appear on the artwork and I generally do the research, hosting, recording and editing. But my wonderful colleagues at Patrimonio are right behind me, helping me with the essential tasks of critical feedback while I edit, uploading all the information to the dedicated page on the Patrimonio website and helping with distributing notice of each episode. So Michael, Sarah, Maria, Caroline and Caroline and Jeanette, a great big thank you. Couldn't do it without you. And Winston, thanks for all the techie help. Now today, I'm really excited to present you with an actress, a journalist, a history researcher, a dancer, a scriptwriter, and a communications and PR strategist, not to mention an art lover too. Sounds like a crowd, right? Well, actually, no, it's just the one person. But what a multifaceted person. Kim Daly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Fran. I myself am an avid follower of the podcast. I enjoy, you know, tuning in regularly. So I'm super delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh, wow, we have a fan as a guest. (laughs) Kim, when did you start acting and what drew you to acting? I have always um, felt the pull of acting. Um, I guess it's, I, it's you know, the, the opportunity to sort of live vicariously through your different characters. It's felt that, you know, in such a relatively short lifespan, I'm not going to reveal my precise age here, but in my <laughs> relatively shortish life I feel I've you know lived multiple lives um, and I think that all boils down to acting the fact that you get to you know inhabit these different characters and I think that's what drew me the most to acting I've been acting for 13 years now I would say yeah so where did you train to become an actress that's an interesting question um, I never actually received formal training because my academic studies took me elsewhere. However, what I did is I purchased all the seminal books by, you know, the great theatre practitioners of the 20th century, you know, starting off from, you know, the classics such as Stanislavski. And I very much sort of lent towards the, the, you know, the American star, the actor's studio. So people like Stella Adler, Sanford Meisner, Lee Strasberg, and I just purchased their books and devoured them. And I sort of learned the different techniques, sometimes very opposing 
diametrically opposing techniques, I would say. Um, and I starting started to see, okay, which ones work best for me. And sometimes I dip into these different pools of, of acting techniques as needed. You're speaking about techniques and theory as well. Do you bolster that up by watching a lot of theatre? I do, nurse. I, I enjoy watching theatre. Um, my husband is also involved in theatre, so he was one of the first sort of driving forces that really sort of immersed me fully in theatre, because actually I started in TV, locally, of course. Um, um, but I, I just fell in love completely with theatre as well. So um, I watch, I enjoy watching as many performances as I can, um, both local and international, where possible. Mm-hmm. And is training ongoing? I mean, do you consider yourself ever trained, ready trained, or is it something that is constantly on your mind and you're constantly working at? Oh, yes. Oh, I never consider myself prepared ever. In fact, mm-hmm. one of the most seminal books is called An Actor Prepares. And I always, it's prepares, not prepared. You're never prepared. Mm-hmm. You're always preparing. You're always trying to hone your craft. You're always trying to fine-tune your technique um, and be ever more truthful to the character that you're portraying. So, yes, I'm always learning. I'm in a constant state of flux. I never say, oh, that was great. Never. (laughs) And what about criticism? Is that useful in actually shaping your performance and shaping the way you approach your art? Yes. I mean, constructive criticism, I think, is always very useful. Um, of course, you take the pieces that apply most to you. I, I enjoy, um, I think I always crave, especially when I'm working with my directors, I tell them, you know, be as brutal as you want with me. Please do. I, I, I honestly enjoy it and actually crave it. Do you do a lot of self-criticism in the sense that do you watch your performances, if they're recorded, of course, and split the hairs and try and see exactly where you could have done better or not? Yes, I do tend to dissect myself brutally. <laughs> I just perform this post-mortem operation on myself and see okay what I could I've done better what worked what didn't so uh I think sometimes years have to pass I think it's only when a lot of years like some performances of 10 13 years ago I can now sit back and just watch and like not be overly critical but mm-hmm. I think most of the time you just are you know because you just constantly you're on this journey of self-improvement so you always want to see what you could fine-tune and what you could always ameliorate In my introduction, I said you're a journalist, but actually you were a journalist and you've played a journalist in Herman Gregg's recent play, They Blew Her Up, which drew on the cruel assassination of investigative journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia. That was actually a turning point in recent Maltese history. Tell us more about both roles in real life and on stage. Yes, so I used to actually work as a journalist um, with the Times of Malta for for a number of years, which was a a professional role um, that I enjoyed tremendously. I think, you know, that you're always fighting for democracy, always trying to give a voice to the vulnerable, to expose what is crooked or wrong or corrupt in the hope of bringing things to a better solution. So that part, I, I, I... thoroughly enjoyed journalism and I think once it was my actual first full-time job after university and I think your mind is molded in a way that once you are a journalist and you think like a journalist you never stop being a journalist so 
that has remained with me a lot. And I have tremendous admiration for the journalists currently working at this point in time. I was recently cast in the role of a journalist in the play They Blew Her Up. My role was that of an investigative journalist who finds herself right in the thick of it. The play focused on the assassination of, of the investigative journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia. Um, it was quite an interesting process, actually, because whenever I take on a new role, the very first exercise I carry out is, you know, I really tend to carry out intense research. Um, I really dig deep into the character. However, I would say that in this particular case, I worked in reverse because I I know what it means to be a journalist. I, I, I understand, you know, the stress, the satisfaction, the frustration and the adrenaline that drives journalists. I understand that journalists dogged pursuit of the truth, the self-doubt that sometimes creeps in, you know, and sometimes the sheer uh, fortitude that you need to really push through any barriers coming your way. So that mindset, I could understand what I then worked on, what, what um, the director, Herman Grat worked on with me was to really, in a way, strip down elements of myself mm-hmm. so that the character could be removed from myself as Kim and I could allow the character to emerge in her own right. So the process that was quite interesting. I, we actually worked in reverse, I would say. How much leeway does an actor have to depart from the script and improvise with the character one is interpreting? Yeah, I think in, in, in general, um, it very much depends on the director and it very much depends on the script as, as such as well. So obviously, if you're taking on a Shakespeare play, Obviously, you will play and you will, you know, play around with the characters. But script-wise, there's only so much you can. You can't really, you know, change the words and suddenly mm-hmm. start speaking and <laughs> you know, using someone else's words. So it very much depends on the director. Some directors are more open to being a bit more flexible. Perhaps you can improvise a bit more. Sometimes you have to, you know, adjust a bit more to the script. I think it, it very much depends on even the tone of the play. There are multiple factors, I think, that feed into it. But there's always, I mean, in every performance that I've ever been a part of, I was always allowed you know, contribute and, and give my opinion and how I saw the character evolving and developing through the course of, throughout the course of the play. What about the audience? Do they contribute to your performance? Yes, very much so. No performance is exactly identical to the one preceding it. There, even if it's the same script, the same setup, the same actors, there's always going to be changes. And, and, and that's the beauty of live performances. And the audience plays a crucial part in this interaction. And because obviously without an audience, um, it's not really a production. Although we had for the very first time, I think um, we had, for instance, They Blew Her Up was actually recorded and um, um, shown to, to, so that people who were unable to attend due to the COVID restrictions um, could actually follow along online. Um, so that was quite a first as well. Yes, I think the audience is very, very critical. You feed off the audience, right? The energy is everything. It's just a cycle. They fuel you with energy and you deliver the energy back into the audience. It's, I think it's a very organic cycle. Have you ever been heckled during a performance? And oh, how do you gosh. handle that? 
<laughs> oh gosh, yes. Oh, one particular performance that I would never forget. Um, I was performing in a play at the Manuel Theatre. And anyway, in a nutshell, the premise of the play was that I was a teenager, was playing the part of a teenager who got pregnant by her teacher and, spoiler alert, he turns out to be her father. So that was the shocking revelation of the play that comes midway through the play in the second act. And, you know, the the play was sort of marketed as a bit of a comedy. It wasn't actually, it was more of a dark comedy perhaps, but not really. And I think that the second act had a diametrically different opposing tone to the first act. And I have this very crisp and distinct memory of myself I mean, when we were rehearsing in the process of rehearsing, I mean, we never had shown it obviously to the public before opening night, but sometimes you'd have people who'd pop in and have a sneak peek at our performances. And, you know, the reaction has always been when this revelation comes out. I mean, there's tears from the actors and character and normally people who would watch us, you know, would watch us with mouth ajar, you know, really sucked into the whole thing. And we're saying, great, it's working. And then comes opening night. Very first performance, Manuel Theatre, 600 people, you know, it's fully packed. And I am at the corner, at the edge of the stage. And I remember the scene and I'm looking out at the audience and I'm clutching my teddy bear. And behind me um, are the rest of the actors who are doing the scene. And this revelation comes out and I'm with tears, obviously, in my eyes and shocked. And the actors in character are also in tears. And I look up at the audience in front of me and I see 600 people in hysterics. They were laughing, guffawing so loudly and I wanted to die. I wanted to just evaporate into thin air and just, oh my goodness. <laughs> How do you turn that mood around? Oh gosh, ah oh, yes. Well, we just carried on, but then obviously some tweaks and the actors' performances were done and in fact it never happened again. So um, we performed multiple weekends and it was so different, you know, in the, the other performances, you're looking at the, the audience, the audience are looking at me, their eyes shining all teary and you just feed off that energy, you know. So it never happened again. But I was, I was thankful it happened in the first performance because from then onwards, I was always prepared for the worst. But oh my goodness, I, could, I wanted to die. But talking about the first performance, let's talk about the last performance. Does it break your heart that it's the very last performance, the end of a project, the project gets killed off then? Is it the best performance for an actor also? Does it break my heart? Every time. <laughs> I, yes, I become very attached to the character and, and even to the whole you know, team dynamic of it. You'd be working with these incredibly, you know, talented cast and crew um, for months and months. Then you just develop this incredible synergy and you're working together and you've inhabited this character for a significant period of time. And then you have to bid goodbye to that character and to the whole production. Um, yes, it's always like a little, I always have my little bereavement process to go through. <laughs> and is it the best performance? Do you think the last night? Um, yeah, 
yeah, sometimes, yes, sometimes it can be, sometimes. But as I said, there's so many factors because as an actor, you don't work alone. You mm-hmm. work as part of a team. And there's so many factors that contribute to a great performance. So it's not just myself, it's the audience, you know, the energy. Um, so I think every performance has its highlights, I would say. Kim, you've done both, but do you consider yourself a film actor or a theatre actor mainly? Oh, I love both equally, I would say. Um, perhaps I'm a little bit more within my comfort zone when it comes to film slash TV acting, because that's where I first started locally. And also there's a certain safety net because when you're, you know, acting in front of a camera, there's so much in post-production that comes into play. And so there's the editing, you know, there's the lighting and, you know, and these factors all contribute towards making the actor look good. Mm-hmm. Whilst when you're performing on stage, there are no gimmicks. It's yourself, it's the audience, there is no filter. You have to be tight on your cues, you have to know your lines, you have to be in the moment. There are no retakes, there are no pauses. So I do find theatre acting more challenging, but I love them both equally, I would say. Let's talk about another element of your life. Actually, this goes back to our first encounter. A couple of years ago, you and I were working on a joint project with Palazzo Falson. And we had one of these timeout moments when we started chatting about unrelated things. And I remember telling you about this great book my sister had just sent me called In Praise of Difficult Women by Karen Carbo. And this book highlighted very headstrong women who went completely against the current and they carved out careers or made amazing discoveries, but they were outstanding women in history. And uh, in exchange, you introduced me to the History Chicks podcast, which I absolutely love. And again, that that is a podcast which is dedicated to really biographies of different women who in some manner or other were outstanding women from history, from recent history, from distant history. You're really into literature and women's history. Why is that? Literature, I've always loved, you know, just the thought of inhabiting this this rich world, which you sort of, you know, built through the words on the page, but also through your imagination has always fascinated me. Your postgrad degree is in literature. Yes, um, modern contemporary literature and criticism. And when it comes to um, women's history, in general, I've always been drawn to, I would say, um, the more underrepresented communities in society, perhaps those who have been a bit more disadvantaged historically. And, well, historically, we know that, I mean, women, it's always been very much of a, of a patriarchal world, hasn't it? And even if you look at the highest echelons of society, if you look at the administrative powers, it's always been dominated by men. And obviously, women were present because we're 50% of the population. So obviously, women were there but then there's a massive imbalance when you come when it comes to women's representation so I've always been fascinating in really you know drawing out these fascinating stories from history and obviously when a woman is operating within such a climate and she somehow you know sticks out in history she would probably have been doing something even more subversive even more you know really pushing the boundaries so whenever I come across such individuals I'm always really fascinated 
by their story. And you're presently conducting extensive research on women's history in Malta for a project we'll discuss later. But tell me first, where are you finding these sources? Which archives are you researching to bring out this information? The research process has been so, so much fun. It's like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, I, I find it, because you're finding these little pieces of information, you know, dispersed across different areas, and you're trying to piece them together to sort of form, you know, some semi-complete picture of a person, of an individual. So um, in terms of my research, I've been looking a lot at the National Archives, so there you'd find you know, a letter written to the Lieutenant Governor, because my, my research is focused on, on uh, World War II. I have also been given, very kindly been given access um, to private memoirs, diaries, and documents by families who have very kindly opened the doors to me, um, which has been very interesting. Um, and sometimes you just find the most fascinating information, even from, from legal papers, for example. So, yeah, I, I managed to build a story and would sort of understand, partially understand the story through um, the adoption papers I found. Um, and there's testimony, you know, court testimonies being quoted in the adoption papers and you can sort of build, you know, and, and, and you know, suss out the story from there. So it's literally, it's been fascinating. So you just find, you know, a glimpse and a shadow and, you know, and, and slowly you start piecing them together in a way that makes the silhouette a bit more complete, shall we say, as, as complete as possible. I mean, the fact that you're looking at private papers is remarkable because those are the ones that are least, uh, that are probably being researched for the first time, while obviously our national archives, vast as they are, are accessible to absolutely everybody. So... Technically, anybody who has the time on the hands to look through them would be able to see the same sources. Although every historian is, is researching from their own angle. So the same source could render different information and it could be interpreted differently by historians with a different kind of outlook or with a different research question. I'm going to ask you to name names. Who are your top three remarkable Maltese women from history and why? That's such a difficult question. Two particularly, I would say, really stand out. One, I would say, is definitely Henrietta Chevalier. She was um, a Maltese widow trapped in Rome when the Nazis occupied um, Rome. Um, and she was part of uh, uh, an organization um, operating underground, which directly contributed to saving over 4,000 prisoners of war and Jews. She, you know, put her life on the line. She was operating under immense duress. I mean, the, the, the punishment was, you know, immediate execution. There were no two ways about it. If she was ever, you know, discovered that she was lodging, you know, fugitives and prisoners of war at her apartment, and she did so much and operated under such conditions, yet she was always jolly and kind and nurturing um, and incredibly, incredibly brave. It's just so fascinating and what she's been through. So I have, and I, most of the information we know about her comes from the memoirs of different soldiers, apart from other documents. Um, there's also a diary of her daughter, 
that I was very kindly given access to, but, um, and, and you just, her character just shines through her warmth, her, her courage, um, her intelligence, her, how crafty and witty she was at times as well. The second woman, I will refer to her for the time being as Ella by her first name. Um, we will delve a bit more and reveal a bit more um, in a few minutes, but um, she was uh, Maltese again, operating as a spy in Tunisia. Mm. Gosh. Um, yes, very, very fascinating. So she was part of a, a secret organization. She was collaborating with the British services and sending information on the movements of um, troops and ships entering and exiting um, Tunisia. She was arrested. She spent months and months in prison. She escaped prison. <laughs> she came to Malta. She had a private audience with the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, because at the time she was Queen. She continued working um, in the secret services even afterwards. She is fascinating and no one knows. Any she's one of those unsung heroines, right? She's, she's just, you know, slipped through the net of, of history and Hopefully, this will help bring her to the fore again. Kim, this is an absolute discovery from your end. I was, yeah, it, is, it was quite an experience coming across, um, coming across her story. And her family have also been extremely helpful and very kind. And they have welcomed me into their homes. And they have given me information and given me access to her documents. And they have been absolutely wonderful. And I'd like to thank them and all the other families, to be honest. Um, who have been who have contributed? Given that this is mid twentieth century, presumably uh, images of these women survive as well. Photographs, old photographs, perhaps paintings. Yes, um, there's quite a wealth of photographs. All of them looking, you know, extremely stylish. You know, when that for me, I mean, the 1940s aesthetic is something which I find absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you just see them. Um, no, there are photographs. Um, so we're lucky to have an understanding of what they looked like. Um, and their character just shines through through their actions, really. It's, it's really a case of whether action sometimes, you know, speaks loud, louder than words, I would say. My goodness, um, prison in Tunisia in the mid 20th century under war conditions. What must that have felt like? Oh, do we know? She, yes, do, we, do we have personal accounts of that? We have. I was given access to letters um, written by her lawyer to her, obviously. Um, because I was, um, so her family gave me access to the letters she kept that she received from her lawyer when she was in, in prison. Um, and she was unwell. Um, she even went on hunger strikes. Um, and yes, she suffered a lot. She, she was a political prisoner, but she was initially housed amongst really rough and hardened criminals. She's oh been goodness. through a lot, but she's one gutsy woman. <laughs> For now, we're going to just take a break and then we'll go on to discover where all this is leading to.
back during the break, I got some more information off Kim. She's agreed to let us know a bit more about the secret project that she's working towards and that this research is being poured into. Now, the, this project hasn't gone public, but you will give us an exclusive little verbal preview of it. Tell us about it. So I have been for the past um, year and a half working on a project with Sharpshoot Media, who have engaged me as the researcher, scriptwriter and presenter. It will be a docudrama focusing on the wartime contributions of Maltese and Malta-based women. The war is quite a well-explored topic from a military point of view. But when it comes to the social history and perhaps even more so focusing on the feminine, on the women's point of view, I think it's been very much unexplored. Um, there is some literature, but very you know, few and far in between. And there is just a wealth, a mine of information just begging to be brought back to life, to the fore. Let me take you one back. What is a docudrama, actually? A docudrama is a documentary series, um, which is very much grounded in, in fact. However, it will be presented to the audience and brought to life by reenactments. So we will actually have certain reenactments of scenes whereby we are casting, you know, actors to bring to life the historical figures and show them, you know, and showcase them to the audience. So it's this marriage of documentary, of history, but also being brought to life in perhaps a bit more of an interactive manner, in a way that perhaps engages people a li little bit more and encourages some more empathy um, in understanding the characters presented to them. But it is grounded absolutely in historical facts. Definitely. It has to be. It has to be. So everything is meticulously researched. Sometimes there is some, you know, very, very little artistic license employed when I need to fill a gap, because obviously if I'm reporting a conversation, I try as much as I can to use their actual words, which I find, you know, reported in diaries, letters, but sometimes you have to fill in a couple of gaps here and there. But um, it is very, very, very strongly rooted in, in, in fact. Will you be uh, taking on the role of one of these women, or some of them? I will not be taking on the role of the women. What I will be is presenting, but I will be a presenter who time travels and becomes mm. a background character in the story of these women. So I will be there in the background and allowing the women's stories to unfold. When can we look forward to seeing these on our screens? Hopefully um, sometime next year. It will be available for people to watch. It is being filmed in the English language, which we hope will make it slightly more accessible to perhaps a wider audience of people. And yeah, exciting. <laughs> Shining a light on great women of the past is obviously uplifting and positive by its very nature. But I know you've also plumbed the depths of women's lived experiences. In fact, you recently acted in a campaign for victim support Malta on domestic violence. Was this just any role for you as a very versatile actress or did it hit deeper? I was quite 
anxious to a certain uh, to a certain degree when when I was preparing for for this campaign. It's a beautiful campaign to raise awareness on um, domestic violence and. I luckily, lucky enough to be considered, um, I am a registered volunteer with the St. Jean Antite Foundation, which is a local NGO, and they have an arm whereby, which is essentially a support group for survivors of domestic violence, whom I have met, and I was desperate to be true to their lived experience and to really do justice to the, what they've been through and to really you know help drive the message that the campaign wanted to portray so um the campaign was broadcast over tv social media and but it was uh, a non-verbal campaign so there were no words so um the challenge was to try and convey the message through you know one's expressions um, at the camera, and I think you know, even the the director did a fantastic job, and he also came up with the concept. And it it, it was quite quite deep and quite, quite heavy, I would say. And I was very sort of keen and anxious to do justice to these women and what they've been through because they are incredible. And perhaps linked to this, you have worked mainly in communications and PR in recent years, so creating campaigns was very much part of your job. Do you find that your work in theatre is relevant to your working life? I think one of the most important skills that I've picked up from theatre is public speaking, which I think always comes into handy. I, strangely enough, I, I work, I've been for the past few years working in quite corporate jobs, which is what possibly not what what one would quite associate with me but I do think you know when it comes to public speaking it's so important whenever you're you know presenting a concept um to the board or when you're trying to mobilize your team and energize them and motivate them so I think public public speaking is something that I learned through theater and just a skill which I find to be highly useful and obviously, having had some experience in, on the local TV scene, I have some understanding of cameras and, and filmic production. So whenever um, I'm putting together a campaign for an infomercial or commercial, that understanding has helped. Kim, you've received a number of awards throughout your working life. Which one was the greatest game changer for you? I have a bit of an, an ambivalent attitude towards awards. I think I'm so grateful to have received them and they really boost your morale and, and give that spark that you need. But I don't know, even especially through this research of these women and the incredible women I've been in touch with even recently through these NGOs that I've been mentioning, I think, you know, sometimes the best work just goes unrecognized and unsung. Mm-hmm. So, with, obviously, I appreciate awards, and obviously, you know, it's it's a great boost to your, you know, ego. And then, however, uh, they're just that. As we said back in the day, you worked as a journalist with the Times. Are you still a writer? And if so, in what genre? I mean, we know you've written, obviously, this uh, the script for the docudrama. But do you continue to write? Mainly, most of my writing has been devoted to to the docudrama. But yes, occasionally, you know, I write a little article here, a little scribble down a little note of poetry there. So I do sometimes try to, you know, put together some verses. But mostly I have been trying to 
inhabit the voices of these women. I mean, this past year and a half has been dedicated to me trying to bring these women to life and trying to speak in their voices and trying to really project them in a way that is truthful to who they were in reality. It's history writing, but really and truly, it's also literature, no? It is, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a happy marriage of the two, well, I like to think about it. So uh, <laughs> it is, you, 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 I try and be as faithful to their own words, but sometimes I have to fill in some of the blanks. So I try to see, okay, what would she have said? What is the word she would have used? What language, what style, what tone <laughs> would she have used? And presumably your, your training as an actress, literally trying to get under the skin of a character helps in this sense. <laughs> yes, it's quite hilarious when I'm actually writing. I tend to do my writing at night because it's where I can focus and really, <laughs> and I'll be actually like emulating the voices, you know, and trying to see how, well, okay, she would have said that and just let the words come <laughs> out and then I write them. <laughs> but what would you read? What is the last great book you've read? Oh, the last great book that I've read is a book called Pandora's Jar, Women in Greek Myths by Natalie Haynes. It's a fascinating book. It's this erudite, witty, subversive take on women in Greek Greek mythology who have traditionally been sidelined, misrepresented, misunderstood, vilified even. And she brings them right back center stage. Uh, And I really, really loved it. Anyone who is into Greek mythology should definitely read this book. It's written in a very, very entertaining manner. Very, very well researched. It's a scholarly work in its own right as well. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Kim, because I'm obsessed with the visual arts, I'm going to to finish off by asking you, what is your all-time favourite painting? My all-time favourite painting... I would say is Judith Beheading Holofernes by Artemisia Gentileschi, <laughs> whom I absolutely adore. I am fascinated by her style. She was very much inspired by Caravaggio, so you can definitely sense his influence in her work. But also she was such a fascinating woman in her own right. She was one of the first major artists in a very much male-dominated field who emerged, you know, as a major player in her own right. She had a fascinating backstory herself. I mean, she was raped by by Tussie at the time and the court uh, proceedings still survive to this day and the way she defended herself. But on an artistic, you know, on an artistic, from an artistic point of view, I think she was, uh, uh, I mean, her works are, you know, violent, the contrast between the chiaroscura, the way she plays with the lighting, the, the visceral um, sort of emotion that she portrays um, in her, her protagonists on canvas. I, f- I find her absolutely fascinating. And I find that painting in particular, there are actually two versions. Um, I, I, I just, something moves me when I look at it. So I would say that would be my favorite painting. Fantastic. And this rounds off all the topics we've talked about, which is women's history, a bit on domestic violence. Artemisia had to undergo that as well. And um, ultimately, just the great spirit that pushes a woman forward to achieve great things despite 
the difficulties that that's the world throws at one. So thank you so much, Kim, for accepting our invitation to be on the podcast. It's been really great chatting with you. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure as always. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are pictures and links to all we've discussed on the Fondazione Patrimonio Malti website under the podcast section. That's www.patrimonio.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on your podcast player as this will help others find it faster. And please do remember to tell a friend about it. Until next episode, goodbye. Goodbye.